afternoon. I'm Michelle Easton, president of the Claire Booth Luce Center for Conservative Women. And I want to thank you all for coming and welcoming, welcome you to our October Conservative Women's Network Lunch, CWN. Special thank you as well to the Heritage Foundation, Bridget Weisenberger, who is the Coalition Relations Coordinator standing up for Heritage today. Heritage and Luce have been putting on this monthly luncheon with outstanding conservative women for almost 20 years now, and it's a real pleasure for us to come here once a month. Today I'm pleased to introduce our October speaker, Karen Swallow Pryor. Karen will be discussing her new book. I'm going to hold it up here. It's a little one, but it's a good one. It's called On Reading Well, Finding the Good Life Through Great Literature. And in her book, she chooses a number of great um, books of Western literature and explores in each one a single virtue like prudence, justice, faith, love, and the result, I can tell you, I can attest personally, of reading it is that you understand the virtues better and you want to practice them in a better way. She's a professor of English at Liberty University. She's won multiple teaching awards. She writes frequently on literature, culture, ethics, and ideas, and has had her articles in many, many places, Christianity Today, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, and many, many others. In addition to On Reading Well, she's the author of another great one called Booked, Literature in the Soul of Me, in which she tells the story of how her deep love of reading over time with that, she slowly meandered, that's her wording, to a deep love of God. And that's a wonderful book as well. And one other one she did, Fierce Convictions, The Extraordinary Life of Hannah More, Poet, Reformer, and Abolitionist. Karen gives frequent lectures and has spoken at many universities and conferences across the nation. She's a research fellow with the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention a senior fellow with Liberty University Center for Apologetics and Cultural Engagement, a senior fellow with the Trinity Forum, and a member of the Faith Advisory Council of the Humane Society of the United States. She completed her PhD at the State University of New York in Buffalo, my husband's from Buffalo, and her undergraduate studies at Damon College in Amherst, New York. Karen and her husband live in beautiful rural Virginia, with many dogs, horses, and chickens. Something like that. Is yeah. their home? <laughs> Please join me now in welcoming Karen Swallow Pryor. I'm going to begin with uh, a brief reading from the introduction to my book, and then I'm just going to talk a little bit more about what the rest of the pages contain. My first book, Booked Literature in the Soul of Me, is a love story the story of how my deep love of reading slowly meandered into a deep love of God. I retell in the pages of Booked how, by reading widely, voraciously, and indiscriminately, I learned spiritual lessons I never learned in church or Sunday school, as well as emotional and intellectual lessons that I would never have encountered within the realm of my lived experience. Most importantly, by reading about all kinds of characters created by all kinds of authors, I learned how to be the person God created me to be. A central theme of Booked 
is reading promiscuously. Uh, this phrase is drawn from one of the books that proved most formative for me, John Milton's Areopagitica. In this treatise published in 1644, the Puritan poet most famous for his epic poem, Paradise Lost, makes an argument that would become a building block for the modern notions of freedom of speech and freedom of the press. In the tract, Milton inveighs against parliamentary licensing orders requiring all publications to be approved by the government before being printed, a legal concept that would later be called prior restraint. Significantly, it was Milton's own political faction that was in power at the time, his own people whom he thought to be in error and hoped to persuade to reject censorship. Areopagitica makes a deeply theological argument, one that Christians today, particularly those nervously prone to a censoring spirit, would do well to consider. Grounded in Protestant doctrine, as well as the polarized political situation surrounding the English Civil War, Milton associates censorship with the Roman Catholic Church and finds in his Reformation heritage a deep interdependence of intellectual, religious, political, and personal liberty, all of which depend, he argues, on virtue. Because the world since the fall contains both good and evil, Milton says, Virtue consists of choosing good over evil. Milton distinguishes between the innocent, who know no evil, and the virtuous, who know what evil is and elect to do good. What better way to learn the difference between evil and good, Milton argues, than to gain knowledge of both through reading widely. Quote, since therefore the knowledge and survey of vice is in this world so necessary to the constituting of human virtue and the scanning of error to the confirmation of truth, how can we more safely and with less danger scout into the regions of sin and falsity than by reading all manner of tractates and hearing all manner of reason? And this is the benefit which may be had of books promiscuously read." End quote. But it is not enough to read widely. One must also read well. One must read virtuously. The word virtue has various shades of meaning, many of which unfold in the pages of this book. But in general, virtue can be most simply understood as excellence. Reading well is in itself an act of virtue or excellence. And it is also a habit that cultivates more virtue in return. Literature embodies virtue first by offering images of virtue in action, and second by offering the reader vicarious practice in exercising virtue, which is not the same as actual practice, of course, but is nonetheless a practice by which habits of mind, ways of thinking and perceiving accrue. Reading virtuously means first, reading closely, being faithful to both text and context, interpreting accurately and insightfully. Indeed, there is something in the very form of reading, the shape of the action itself, that tends toward virtue. The attentiveness necessary for deep reading, the kind of reading we practice in reading literary works as opposed to skimming news stories or reading instructions, requires patience. Even the simple decision to set aside time to read in a world rife with so many other choices competing for our attention requires a kind of temperance. 
If, like me, you have lived long enough to have experienced life and reading before the internet, perhaps you have now found your attention span shortened and your ability to sit and read for an hour or more nil. The effects on our minds of the disjointed, fragmentary, and addictive nature of the digit digitized world and the demands of its dinging, beeping, and flashing devices are well documented. Nicholas Carr explains in The Shallows what the internet is doing to our brains that, quote, the linear mind is being pushed aside by a new kind of mind that wants and needs to take in and dole out information in short, disjointed, often overlapping bursts, the faster the better. Our brains work one way when trained to read in logical linear patterns and another way when continually bouncing from tweet to tweet, picture to picture, and screen to screen. These effects on the brain are amplified by technology developers who intentionally build addictive qualities into programs in order to increase user engagement, as some industry leaders have acknowledged. Whether you feel you have lost your ability to read well or that you never had it at all, be encouraged. The skills required to read well are no great mystery. Reading well is, well, simple, if not easy. It just takes time and attention. The virtue or excellence of literature cannot be understood apart from its form. To read literature virtuously requires attention to that form, whether the form be a poem, a novel, a short story, or a play. To attend to the form of a work is by its very nature an aesthetic experience. The content of a literary work is what it says, its form is how it is said. Unfortunately, we are conditioned today to focus on content at the expense of form, when we read or watch a film or view a work of art, we tend to look for themes, worldviews, gripping plots, relatable characters, and so forth, but often neglect the form. Part of this tendency is the fruit born of a culture influenced by a utilitarian emphasis on function and practical use at the expense of beauty and structure. Yet we know from real-life relationships and experience that how something is communicated is just as important as, if not more important, than what is communicated. Form is what sets literary texts apart from informational texts in the same way that a painting differs from paint that covers a wall. Same materials, different form. So my exploration in these pages of a dozen or so great works of literature attempts to model what it means to read well by examining the insights about virtues, the, the virtues these works offer. I have selected from among my favorite literary works those that might help us to understand the classical virtues, the cardinal virtues, the theological virtues, and the heavenly virtues. Sometimes the virtues are shown through positive examples, and sometimes, perhaps more often, given the exploratory nature of great literature, by negative examples. Literary characters, either way, have a lot to teach us about character. Yet to read well is not to scour books for lessons on what to think. Rather, to read well is to be formed in how to think. 
In an experiment in criticism, C.S. Lewis argues that to approach a literary work with nothing but a desire for self-improvement is to use it rather than to receive it. While great books do offer important truths about life and character, Lewis cautions against using books merely for lessons. Literary, literary works are, after all, works of art to be enjoyed for their own sake rather than merely used for our personal benefit. To use art or literature rather than receive it, Lewis says, merely facilitates, brightens, relieves, or palliates our life and does not add to it, end quote. Reading well adds to our life, not in the way a tool from the hardware store adds to our life, for a tool does us no good once lost or broken, but rather in the way a friendship adds to our life, altering us forever. So I wanted to um, read from the introduction to just give you an idea of what I mean by reading well. And then what I do in the rest of the book, which consists of 12 chapters, is I examine one of the classical virtues in relationship or through the lens of a particular work of literature. So I want to talk a little bit about virtue in general because it's something that we don't talk about a lot. We may not even know what the virtues are or what, it, what they mean. Um, and we have such a rich legacy and heritage from um, ancient philosophy, from early church fathers and on about the virtues. So as I said in the introduction, the simplest definition of virtue is excellence. Um, we could talk about, and Aristotle does, he, and Aquinas does, about um, different kinds of beings that exist. And take, for example, a pair of scissors. Um, a pair of scissors is excellent if it does what it was made to do well. Um, a sports car is excellent when it goes fast. So in order to know what constitutes excellence for anything that we might be talking about, we actually have to have an understanding of its purpose or its telos. So here we arrive at the problem that we have in the 21st century. Um, today, in a secular culture, not only do we not agree on what the purpose or meaning of human life is, we often think that there isn't even such a thing. There is no purpose. There is no meaning. So this is really the reason why we have lost this treasure trove of the virtues because to understand virtue depends on our understanding what our purpose or our telos is as human beings. So we have to recover that as well. And perhaps by talking about virtue, we can maybe make our way backwards. Um, so I do draw on the book, on a very important book by um, Alistair McIntyre, After Virtue, where he traces you know, virtue before it disappeared and, and how and why it is that we live in a culture that he describes as being after virtue. Um, of all of the, the uh, writings and the philosophy on virtue, I, I do draw on Aristotle the most. I think he gives us the wisest picture of what virtue, each virtue is in the sense that he describes it as a mean between two vices. And those vices are each an extreme, um, an extreme of excess and an extreme of deficiency. And virtue is in the very middle, the golden mean of those two things. And I'll give you a few examples to kind of flesh this out. I think it's so helpful, particularly in 
a culture today which is so polarized and so fragmented. I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but <laughs> there's a lot of polarization and it's not getting better. And so I think that the idea of, vir the Aristotelian idea of virtue is, has always been a good idea, but I think it's so helpful for us in this particular political and social and cultural moment where, which is defined by polarization. So to give a couple of examples, um, courage is, is a good example to use to talk about this golden mean. Um, I think we tend, again, in our polarized culture and where we think more is better, uh, if, it's, if there's something good, then more of it must be better. That is not what virtue is. So I think we think of courage as something that you could never have too much of. Um, but no, Aristotle says otherwise. An excess of courage actually becomes rashness. Because you can be bold or rash, but if you if that's not moderated by all of the other virtues and also by um, being connected to preserving good, um, then it isn't courage. It's just rashness, and I think we see a lot of that in the world today. And and people don't know the distinction. They just think if someone does something really, you know, gutsy or bold, well, that must be courageous. But it's not virtuous courage if it is too extreme and also if it's not tied to the other virtues. Um, and of course, the deficiency of courage is we're more familiar with is cowardice. Um, but I think what we need, we have enough boldness and brashness um, and rashness today. And uh, reclaiming what virtue really is would help us to understand what virtuous courage is. Couple of other examples, um, temperance. Now, this word gets used in a lot of different ways. Um, we can talk about temperance in terms of our, our emotions and our feelings. Aristotle used it very strictly in the sense of tempering our physical appetite, so our desire for food, sex, and drink, all of which are necessary for human life to continue, whether our own human life or the human race. And so temperance is not, again, we, this is our, an example of our tendency to go toward extremes. We think of temperance today, I think, largely as restraint, as withholding. But that's not virtuous. Temperance, according to Aristotle, and also Aquinas talks a bit about it, is putting our natural and good desires in proper order. Because it is good to desire food. Um, just not too much um, or too little. It is good to, to desire drink because we, if we don't satisfy our thirst, we will die. Um, and, you know, desiring sex is good too. Um, but all of these have to be put in proper order. So asceticism or eating disorders, those, uh, those practices that deny our good, healthy appetites, our vices, just as indulging in them too much or desiring them too much is also a vice. And it does have to do with the desire. So it's not just, according to Aristotle, if you desire something and deny it to yourself, which we have to do that a lot, um, you have not yet attained the virtue of temperance because the virtue of temperance is when you actually have, have all of your desires in line with what that healthy golden mean. So it's a really, really tough one, um, at least for me. Um, another example that shows this how, uh, how a virtue is a, is a golden mean is patience. Um, patience is the habit of bearing suffering well. Um, if you are alive and you are in this world, you are going to suffer. There is no 
choice in the matter. We must all suffer. And the only thing that we can choose when we suffer is whether or not we will bear that suffering well. Um, and so it, the way that it is a mean, virtuous mean, is that we basically suffering is a result of evil. Um, I mean, there are all kinds of different you know, suffering. I mean, I know when we're sitting in traffic, that is a form of suffering. I know. Um, and um, so we have to be patient. But um, to be patient is to endure evil without committing evil in return. So we need to endure. And I want to be careful. I ended up in the last, um, as I was revising this book, making a clarifying point because, um, because patience is a virtue that can be weaponized. And people who are suffering can be told to be patient, um, whether we're talking about abused women um, or what, whoever we might be talking about. But you know, there can become a point, actually, where just simply enduring suffering and not doing anything about it or just um, or not seeking justice can actually not be virtuous because you are actually um, committing evil by letting it go on too long. It's kind of complicated, but um, we have to be careful not to, I, I, again, these, these virtues can be distorted and misused and weaponized, and I think patience is one. It, it's, uh, I, I cite the sto this story, this ancient story from medieval literature of the patient Griselda, um, whose um, husband tests her by doing all these horribly cruel things to her, like saying he's married another woman and taking her children from her, and like she's rewarded in the end because she just bears the suffering. Well, that's not virtuous uh, patience. Um, a final example of a virtue to talk about a little bit is humility. This is, again, another one where in our, in our tendency toward extremes today, we think the more is better. So we think that someone who is humble, exceedingly modest, uh, we think that's being showing more humility. Humility is actually again, it, it's it's a, a golden mean. It's accurate self-esteem, uh, self-assessment. So it's esteeming oneself neither too little nor too much. It is not humble to think nothing of yourself, because that's not an accurate self-assessment um, from a secular point of view, or even more importantly, from a Christian point of view, where you are a child of God. You must esteem and understand and assess yourself correctly um, and not regard yourself too little or too much. So those are just a few examples of the virtues. Now I have a whole section on the theological virtues, which are a little bit different because um, the other virtues are natural and they are attainable by all human beings and the supernatural virtues are also, but um, they are actually originate with God and we actually can practice them, uh, attain them only from God. And uh, yet once we have them, like the other virtues, we can practice them and develop them. And those are faith, hope, and love. Um, and they come directly from the Bible, of course. So just briefly before I open it up for questions, I thought it might also be helpful for me to talk about uh, one of the chapters, one of the works of literature and, and, the, uh, and the virtue I talk about in that chapter to give you an idea of how the whole book works. And I thought I would talk about um, the virtue of justice, uh, which I examine um, through uh, Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities. Um, now, justice is actually, it was the hardest virtue for me to research and wrap my mind around and then write about. Because unlike the other virtues, justice actually, all the other virtues have to do with one individual person, you. 
and, and you attaining and practicing these virtues. Justice is a virtue that is related to an individual. We can be just people or not just people. But justice is also a virtue of a community. So that makes it kind of complicated. So there is individual virtue, the individual um, attainment of the virtue of justice, and also a society, a culture, a community can attain or not attain political or social um, justice, which I don't mean social justice, but <laughs> um, justice in a in a societal societal uh, communal way. Um, Essentially, justice is the right ordering of relationships within a community. And so we have to, as individuals, need to desire that right ordering. And then we, if we are just individuals, we want our society to um, attain and uh, protect that right ordering as well. Um, and so in A Tale of Two Cities, uh, we see again, this propensity that we have as human beings to gravitate towards extremes, because the, the French Revolution that is the center of the story uh, was a reaction to many years of injustice perpetrated upon the poor and, uh, and the oppressed by those in power, by the aristocracy, and it was a horrible, terrible thing. And the French Revolution came about in order, theoretically, hopefully, they thought, to correct that injustice. But as we all know, the front, as a result, what happened was not a restoration of justice, but simply um, an extreme that went in the opposite direction and further injustices were imposed. Once, um, once those who had been <coughs> oppressed were, became in power, then they perpetrated similar, perhaps even worse, injustices on um, on those who had oppressed them. And so what we see in A Tale of Two Cities is an example of how injustice is met not with the correction that is, attains justice, but injustice in the opposite direction. And the interesting part of that is that Dickens, I mean, it's A Tale of Two Cities, <laughs> obviously. Um, and so Dickens was also writing, I mean, he was writing about his own country, England, uh, a century in, in the following, the century following the French Revolution. And he, was basically trying to convince his own country people of the possibility that they too could commit the same kind of error of excess that they saw in the French Revolution. And so there's two layers in the novel. Um, and then I wrote about this chapter in a way where I was hoping that we could see in our moment um, where we see um, cries of injustice everywhere, and we need to be concerned about it. Yet there's also this tendency, this natural human tendency that we have to correct injustice, not with justice, but with further injustice. So I think there's a third layer that we can kind of add to this brilliant um, telling that Dickens gives us of the French Revolution for his times, and I try to retell it for our times and to display in doing that the virtue of justice. So I would love to take questions from you, get Thank feedback. You. Thank you very much. This book is a joy to readers. And even to those who don't read, I would imagine they'll be inspired to want to read. I hope so. And she talks about the virtue of reading slowly and marking yeah. up your books and all the things that readers do. <laughs> so I just love this book and uh, look forward to some questions. We will have it outside for sale for $20. 
and maybe leaving signs home? Absolutely. I Terrific. rode the train for four hours to get here. So. <laughs> Great. If you'll raise your hand, give your name and your affiliation. Oh, here's one over here. And um, stand up, maybe. Thank you. Hi, my name's Haley. I go to Georgetown, and I have worked with Claire Woodloose in the summer as a fellow. Um, my question is about Aristotle. Um, I'm not, like, I've read it a couple times, but obviously I'm not a scholar. Uh, and one of the things that he talks about is emulating someone who is a good person and, and following their behaviors in order to practice. And sometimes I find that that devolves into subjectivism and, like, who do you think is virtuous? Mm. And, and how do you respond to that? Oh, that's a great question. So, of course, I sort of um, adhere to that model because I'm saying that, you know, in literature we can find characters who are models to emulate or not because I think negative examples as well can work. So I, I think that that is um, a wise approach, but I think that Aristotle tempers that, and I also would temper that, by, um, by pointing out, I mean, he basically just defines what the virtues are. It's kind of an objective... Um, old-fashioned way of approaching things to actually say, here is how this virtue is defined. This is what it looks like, and this is not what it looks like. Um, I mean, there's obviously some relativity just in the idea of something being a, um, a moderation between two extremes, but I think that's actually the beauty of it, because there is a, you know, some what looks like courage in one situation may not be courage in another. So um, actually, the first virtue that I talk about um, is probably the best answer to your question, and it's the it's one of the cardinal virtues, and it's the is considered the queen of the virtues, and it's prudence. So prudence is a form of wisdom. There are different kinds of wisdom. Um, there's theoretical wisdom, and then there is prudence, which is applied wisdom. So I call it wisdom on the ground, um, because there are a lot there's a lot of wisdom out there, and a lot of people out on the internet love to share it with me. Um, <laughs> you know, like, this is how it should be, or this is how you should go about this. But it doesn't always work in real life, in real life situations. And again, that's not relativism, that's prudence, right? Which is a form of wisdom to kind of figure out what things are really great theoretical and theoretically, but then maybe have to be tempered or modified in a real situation. That's prudence. And so um, I think prudence is where we look at a role model, but also look at what, what are the virtues, and no, of course no role model will be perfect. And tell about the book you use for prudence. Oh, the book I use, it's an old-fashioned book that is <laughs> no one has ever heard of, probably, and no one... Yeah, the, the film is great, and if you take a class with me, you will read it. But um, it's The History of Tom Jones, a foundling, an 18th century novel. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, I, I definitely, a few of us remember that one. Yes, so fun. Um, and so, yes, I, it's, a, it's a long novel, but it is, it is a wonderful romp through 18th century England. And yes, <laughs> and it teaches prudence. Oh, I, I, yes. Am I calling on the people? Yes. Okay, okay, yes. <laughs> Hi, um, my name is Caitlin Walls. I'm a former ERLC intern, and I'm delighted to get to, to talk with you today. Thank you so much for this wonderful book. I studied literature and ethics, and so I'm very grateful for the work that you're doing to try and recover some of the moral language that we've lost, um, according to Alistair McIntyre, who you <laughs> reference in your book. Um, I have kind of a two-pronged question for you on the virtue of chastity. Um, 
so you mentioned Pope John Paul II, which was really neat. Um, a lot of evangelicals don't read popes. So it was, it was really <laughs> Especially great. Especially Baptist ones. Yes, exactly. Um, don't tell. So, so you mentioned that Pope John Paul II says that even a husband and a wife are supposed to practice chastity with regard to each other. Not just, they're not just supposed to not commit adultery, but they're also supposed to practice chastity in their own relationship, um, which wasn't an idea that was taught to me growing up as an evangelical Southern Baptist. Um, so one, how do you think a husband and a wife can practice chastity in relation to each other? And two, do you think that the widespread and unquestioned use of contraception could be malforming our consciences? Thanks. Um, whoa, I'm gonna start with the easy, uncontroversial questions. Um, so uh, one of the things, or you know, what, what I say about chastity in the book is, is, and again, coming from my background, your background, um, evangelicals, especially the Baptist type, tend to talk about abstinence. Um, which is not the same thing as chastity. I mean, there, there's a component of abstinence, but, but abstinence is so negative, and chastity is, is a positive thing, and we are, all, we are all called to practice chastity, regardless of our situation or state, um, whether we're single, whether we're married, whether we struggle with this or struggle with that, we're all to practice chastity. It, it, you know, I think the closest synonym to chastity rather than abstinence is faithfulness, fidelity. And so um, within the marital relationship, a husband and wife practice that in so many ways, not just the physical ways, but um, you know, the, the intellectual ways, the emotional ways. Um, so we talk about emotional affairs and the pornography problem, all kinds of other things that um, might um, not result in actual adultery, but are not examples of chaste behavior toward one another. And the novel that I uh, discuss in this chapter um, is Ethan Frome. Um, in, and it's a, it's a, late, it's a uh, late 19th, early 20th century setting. Uh, there's no consummation of the relationship, most likely, if, uh, in, in the novel. Um, it's a great novel. <laughs> there is poetic justice, though, um, <laughs> for those of you who've read it. Um, but um, but that, that the whole point is that chastity is not just about the physical act. Chastity begins in the mind, in the in the heart, in the emotions. And I talk about it in terms of you know lust of the eye, um, lust of the eyes, lust of li pride of life, um, and all the things that that can result in unchaste behavior. Um, so, in terms of your second question, um, I do think that the contraception mentality has harmed um, the uh, has harmed marriage, the institution of marriage, and our understanding of marriage, um, and has contributed to an idea that marriage is about um, two sexual partners being friends together throughout life, um, and. Yeah, here we are. Um, so I I think that um, yeah yeah I, th I think that um, evangelicals and Baptists have a lot to learn from popes. <laughs> so yes. Hi, I'm in. It. Oh, this is a little bit loud. Take it. Okay, sorry. Uh, my name is Ian. I'm an intern here at the Heritage Foundation. Um, my question was, is that we're regarding Aristotle and kind of building off her question, uh, chastity is defined, not chastity, excuse me, temperance is defined as natural ordering of uh, desires. 
Would you say that kind of regarding chastity, we could say that in a modern context, it's sort of a middle ground between, um, how do I say this, like sort of a, it's very much a in the gray zone where we determine it by feel rather than by sort of a mathematical formula of black and white. Does that make oh, sense? Ch chastity? Yeah, or um, temperance in general. And, and, and temperance, yes, I think so. Again, again, in some sense, all of these virtues are defined by the extremes and the extremes change. Um, and so, um, I mean, if to just throw out one kind of basic concrete example, if, um, you know, if at one time a woman who allowed her ankles to show would have been considered, you know, unchaste in some respects. And we probably are okay with that now. And, and by some objective standards, I think that's okay to be okay with that. So, um, but in, in a different time, then if that was not the norm, then, then it probably contributed to um, unchastity. Um, now, again, there, there are objective moral standards, um, but they are contextual. They can change from culture to culture. Um, so, I, again, I think this is, the, this is why the virtues are so helpful and important to us, because we tend to just, we want to go with rules, or we want to go with anything goes um, as a culture. And I think most people are just, it's just, we, we gravitate toward one of those camps or another. And, um, and so we don't, um, we don't cultivate any of these, these virtues, beginning with prudence. And, 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 and that's another thing that I do weave throughout the book is how they are all connected with one another. Like you cannot have, you cannot have one virtue without the others. Yes. yes. You've been teaching students great literature now for many, many years. Talk about the changes you see uh, in students getting to college mm -hmm. and their preparedness to yeah. study and talk about all this. Okay. All right. Um, well, um, I've seen, you know, I've seen, I'll talk about a few different things and maybe I'll connect them, maybe I won't. Um, I will say that um, just starting at sort of the most super, superficial thing, um, about, I would say in the past five or 10 years, so that's sort of in the middle of, you know, somewhere in the middle of the teaching career, um, students were enamored with ebooks and digital reading and so forth. And I had to put, I have to say in my upper level, like, I don't allow ebooks. You have to have the book here. We're going to flip through pages. We're going to, you know, underline and mark things. Um, and I don't have to do that anymore. No one wants the ebooks anymore. Um, the English majors, they, they want. Sorry, they want the, the actual physical book. So I think that that we've reached kind of a saturation point, at least um, for temporarily on that. So that's encouraging to me. And I, you know, I, I understand there's a place for ebooks and and all that, but that's just not how I run my classroom. The same with the laptops. I used to have to give them kind of a lecture. Um, don't use your laptops in class. Take your notes by hand because research shows that you'll retain it more. And I don't. The past couple of years, I haven't had to give, I mean, the students, they come with their little composition books, just like I have, and they take their notes by hand, and they bring their books, and so, yay. Um, so <laughs> I think, I think, and this is why I, I think that this book has been, I mean, I wanted it to be well-received, but it's been more enthusiastically received than I expected. I think we are, I'm on the internet all the time, I confess. I'm a social media addict, um, but the um, hopefully using that for good. Um, but 
we've all, I think, reached a saturation point. We all realize even if we're going to use this social media, use technology, we need to counterbalance it with this kind of sustained attention and reading books. Um, and particularly in my own um, evangelical community, there's been excellent reception of this book by pastors and theologians, and I'm so excited about that. Um, another thing I would say that's changed with um, students, oh, um, it's my mom, <laughs> so she's allowed. <laughs> um, <laughs> she's so modern with her iPhone um, and her Facebook. <laughs> um, um, I trained her well. <laughs> um, and this is a little bit more of a negative, um, but I get we get more and more students, uh, and again, I'm talking mainly about English majors. Uh, that's who I teach primarily. Um, who want to be writers, yay, um, <laughs> but don't want to be readers. And um, I think there are a lot of reasons for that, um, but you really cannot, they're enamored with the idea of writing, but uh, don't necessarily know the kind of foundation that's pretty much necessary uh, that's provided by reading widely and reading well. So um, that's a concern that I have. Yes, yes. Yes. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Um, I'm an, an intern here at the Heritage Foundation. Um, just graduated from a Christian university recently. Uh, you mentioned a few virtues that you said came straight from God. Uh, how does your faith impact, or how do you believe other people who write literature of faith um, can tell a story with characters that are virtuous that maybe others that don't have that faith couldn't show? Um, I have gone to some Christian film festivals and things where on the flip side, Christian narratives are all, all often condemned as being too preachy, um, only about using the story for a moral purpose instead of rece mm -hmm. receiving it like the Lewis quote you had. Mm -hmm. what, what recommendations would you give Christian writers who want to incorporate good virtue in their stories to, to really show a perspective that they can offer without mm -hmm. only using it as right. a hammer to right. Right, yeah. right, and that's um, that's an important critique that Christians need to hear and understand. Um, I mean, and again, the, the I'm when I um, talk about these books and the virtues that can be seen in them, um, I'm not. I don't claim anywhere that this is the theme of the book. This is what the writer was trying, the message he was trying to convey, because great literature really doesn't do that. Great literature is much more complex and has many more um, things that it addresses. It's uh, and so. I'm just providing kind of a lens to say, oh, look, we can read this book that has not, you know, most people would never, Cormac McCarthy's The Road, um, it's about hope, I say. I don't think that's really what Cormac, I mean, I, it's there. I mean, he has a, it, it's not that I'm violating the text, but I'm not saying he sat down to say, I'm going to write a book about the vir theological virtue of hope because he's not even a Christian. So, but I'm saying we can still see it there. So I think Christian artists need to look at the examples that are already, the role models that are already there of great literature and great film and read Flannery O'Connor's Mystery and Manners where she talks about these things. Um, and not, I mean, the purpose of art is to be art. <laughs> um, and then if it's good art, the human lessons will come out of it. Um, but let art be art and um, let it be good art and don't let the message overwhelm the art because then it becomes a sermon. And and it's just, it's and there's nothing wrong with sermons. I hear them every week. Um, but we have to understand 
what it is that we're doing. And if we're trying to do art, then we need to do art and do it well. Um, and as Francis Schaeffer says in his little booklet, um, Art and the Bible, um, that if you are, you know, the worldview will come out. If you have a strong Christian worldview and you're an artist and you work on your art, it will it will come out in the same way that, you know, um, a carpenter who is a Christian and is ethical and, and lives a Christian life, his work will demonstrate his beliefs. Um, he doesn't have to, like, make the stairway into the form of a cross for it to, you know, it's like that's, um, he just has to be a good carpenter and live his life and run his business according to Christian values. And that's what Christian artists need to do as well. Anyone else? Thank you so much. It is a great book. I even love the little illustration your publisher put. It's a reader, very comfortable in the chair. The book stacked up, his doggy beside him, his mug of coffee. That's great. That is and I, I do want to give a shout out. I mean, I actually hired an artist to do the cover. It wasn't the publisher. Uh, okay. and, and to do the inside illustrations because I wanted the book to be beautiful. So it was a little bit more beyond just what the publisher would it have is. done. So. It is. We have a couple of gifts for you before oh. we go out to lunch. This is our Claire Booth Loose Posse Institute limited Ooh. edition. Oh, Poppy a mug nice mug. Yes. With her famous saying, what is that? <laughs> no good deed goes unpunished. There you go. <laughs> I know that. <laughs> and a little tote bag to put oh, your gifts in here. Oh, thank you. And from Heritage here, Bridget. Heritage, she has a scarf for you. Thank you so much oh, for coming. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was a delight. So if you'd like to join us for lunch, you can head out these doors, take a left, and then go through the double doors here, and we'll have sandwiches available for everyone. And we're selling the books outside as well. Thank you so much. Thank you.